everybody. Julian Charles here again of themindrenewed.com, back from our short summer break, podcasting to you from the depths of the Lancashire countryside here in the UK. Today is the 10th of September 2013, and I'm very pleased to be speaking at long last to Pastor Mark Musser. And I say at long last because this particular interview has been in the pipeline for, well, probably a few months. And uh, we're going to be discussing Mark Musser's, I think, very important book, Nazi Oaks, which I think somewhat surprisingly, but uh, very convincingly, shows that the Nazi regime in Germany in the 1930s and 40s was very much interested in environmental concerns in its own very idiosyncratic way, of course, and that some of their thinking does in fact have some rather disturbing parallels with extreme environmentalism in the modern world. And the book has the striking subtitle, The Green Sacrifice of the Judeo-Christian Worldview in the Holocaust. And of course, I'm hoping that we'll be unpacking the meaning of that as we go along. So, Mark, it's great to be speaking to you at long last, and uh, thanks ever so much for coming on. Thank you for inviting me. I appreciate it. Now, as I said, we're going to be concentrating on the subject of your book in a few moments and looking at what you call the deep ecology of Hitler's National Socialists and to what extent you see some of those ideas alive and well in the modern world. But I'd, I'd like to ask first, if I may, if you could introduce yourself to us, because you have a theological training, you've worked as a missionary, and now you are a pastor in Olympia, Washington, and yet you've written this extensively researched book about the Nazis. So I have to ask you, will you tell us briefly about yourself and how it is that you came to write a book like this? That's a good question. Um, as a young man, I became a Christian when I was about 16 years old. Then I went on to college uh, here in Olympia, Washington, in a very, um, a very liberal left-wing school. We studied uh, people like Karl Marx and uh, all kinds of socialist ideas, and especially environmentalism. This is one of the major premier schools of environmentalism in the country. And so my first year at this school, all they did was complain about how Christians are destroying the environment. The idea of Christianity and the fact that man is made in God's image and therefore he's ruler over the earth and he can do with nature whatever he wants to. So I went to that school. I learned a lot of that kind of stuff. I didn't exactly know what to do with it at the time. I put it on the shelf, so to speak, for a while. And then my last year of going to that school, I decided to go to seminary and I wanted to be involved in the ministry. And so I went to uh, Portland, Oregon after I graduated from the Evergreen State College in Olympia. I went down to Portland to Western Seminary. And I graduated in 94 with a Master of Divinity. I got married my last year, and then we were home for like a year after uh, after I came back from seminary and then went to Belarus for a year. And that's uh, Belarusia. That's north of Ukraine. It's due west of Russia, south of the Baltics. And we had a, a missionary time there in, in Belarus for a year. And then we came home for two years and then went back to Kiev for six years. So we spent six years on the mission field in Kiev, had a great time there. In fact, I still go back to Kiev twice a year usually. In fact, pretty soon I'll be leaving to go again. Uh, we had a wonderful time on the mission field. We came back home in 2004, and uh, we started a little church here in Olympia, Washington. Starting a church is not easy. It's a very difficult thing to do. So I, I also work part-time for the Building Industry Association of Washington. And uh, one of my assignments uh, was to get on top of new rules and regulations related to stormwater management. Environmentalists are all concerned about stormwater management. You know, this is before the global warming scare became big. Uh, before that, it was uh, stormwater management. What happens to water when it hits a roof and goes down a gutter and heads on out to the uh, infrastructure? What are we going to do about that problem? Or even worse, when the builders go and dig up everything in order to build everything, how do we stop soil erosion and all the things that happen there? And it was unbelievable. The new rules have come out to uh, regulate that kind of activity. And then it all came to a head when I stumbled across that one of the original gurus of stormwater management was um, Alwyn Seifert. And the Nazis called him Wild Alwyn. And basically, he's one of the original gurus on stormwater management. And so I wrote a little article on this, and uh, it made a lot of people really upset. <laughs> so this was your route into that subject. Yeah, and I saw the reaction of this, and this all goes back to my time at the Evergreen State College. When I saw the reaction here, I got to start looking into this. So I did, and then out of it came a book. Uh, about three years of research. Of course, I didn't spend all my time on it, but I did spend a considerable amount of time on it. Hmm, and you really did open up a can of worms at that point. Yeah, well, I was shocked. I, I had no idea that this was even true of National Socialism. And yet, when I start comparing it to the anti-Christian attitudes that a lot of 
environmentalists had against Christianity, I noticed the parallels in, in National Socialism is that they were complaining about the Jews for the same reasons. Yeah. So then I started to see the parallels between the anti-Christian environmentalism and anti-Semitic environmentalism in Germany. And so then I put these things together, and, and now I have this book called Nazi Oaks, The Green Sacrifice, the Judeo-Christian Worldview in the Holocaust. Yeah, and uh, in the book you make a very clear and convincing case that there are these parallels with some of the things that are going on today. And of course I'd like to turn to your book, and the first question I really want to ask about the book itself is why you called it, what you did call it, Nazi Oaks. Now you make a, a number of references to how the Nazis latched on to the oak tree as a symbol, and you mentioned, for example, the way they preserved Goethe's oak tree at Buchenwald, the large number of oak trees at the entrance to Auschwitz, and you even bring up Adolf Eichmann's name as actually meaning in German, Man of the Oaks, among other examples. So could you start telling us why they chose this symbol of the oak tree, why it was so important to them? Well, the oak tree is actually rooted in ancient pagan nature worship. You know, there's quite a story, even in the Old Testament, you can read about it, where Baalism was tied up worshiping under the oak trees, and people committed, uh, you know, child sacrifice. You know, human sacrifice was offered a lot of times underneath the oak trees. In the Promised Land of Israel, where things are much drier, you know, the green trees are on top of the hills. And so people would go up to the hills and do their worshiping. They worship Baal. And so human sacrifice was something that was practiced often uh, in many places throughout the Near East and later on in, in Europe, too, with, especially with ancient Germany. And so the oak tree was something very important, something very symbolic. Oak trees were worshipped, really, uh, throughout all of Europe. And they offered sacrifices under those oak trees. So were they trying there to return, in their minds anyway, to a more distant time, and at the same time also choosing something that was abhorrent to Jews and Christians? Yeah, the Nazis wanted to go, they wanted to recover the Greco-Roman uh, Empire. That's, that was their job. Uh, in fact, Hitler said in 1941, he defined fascism for us, which everybody ignores, strangely enough. He, he tells us that fascism is a spontaneous return to the traditions of ancient Rome. So that was his definition of fascism, and I think we need to pay attention to that. That means something to him, and, and you, you start reading his table talk, and you can see this type of thinking throughout many discussions he has with all of his henchmen. And so uh, he was trying to bring back this Greco-Roman empire, and a part of that, would the whole point is we need to get rid of Jews and Christians as a part of that process, because they distorted uh, that ancient pagan culture. And in Hitler's mind is that Jews and Christians actually stopped the progress of humanity. And so we need to get rid of the Jews and Christians, starting with the Jews, and after the war we'll take care of the Christians, in order to bring humanity back into evolutionary progress. And that's how he thought. Now, we may think that's nuts today, but that's, that's exactly what he was thinking. And so the idea of going back to the oak trees, they thought it really is a kind of a forward movement. So in a sense, they were going back in order to go forward. So they, exactly, yes. They considered uh, the, the Jewish faith, the Christian faith, as being this false branch of history. And so they cut that branch off, go back, and then exactly. have a scientific attitude. If only the Romans had science, wouldn't it have been a better world? They're going to do this scientific Roman world themselves. Exactly, yes. So that whole going back and going forward, it, you know, it's, a, it's a, a troubling thing for a lot of scholars as they look at National Socialism. But if you really sit down and think about it, it's really not all that troubling if you understand what Hitler thought he was doing. And in a moment, I want to ask you about some of the other influences that shaped their worldview, and particularly about uh, romantic influences. Before we get on to that, you mentioned the way that the Nazis had this different view of humanity and where they, the way they rejected the idea that we find in the Bible, you know, in the book of Genesis, where it says that human beings are created in the image of God. They rejected that. They saw, as far as I understand it, they saw humanity as merely part of the natural order. Of course, we and everybody agrees that human beings are indeed natural, but their view was that we're just natural. There's nothing special about human beings. Um, could you describe how that rejection of the Bible's view of humanity as people being made in the image of God was so central to their worldview? Well, the biggest thing is that if, if man is made in God's image, that includes everybody, and that makes everybody equal. And of course, under National Socialism, you had the uh, racism and so you can't have man made in God's image and race in the belief in racism at the same time. You have to you get rid of one or the other. So obviously the Nazis got rid of the idea that man was made in God's image, biblically defined. Now Hitler once in a while will make the comment, man being made in God's image, but his idea of God was nature. Hitler was a pantheist. So he talked God talk, but he didn't mean Judeo-Christian God. He meant a pantheistic God as a part of nature and national socialism is leading us back to pantheism. 
And, of course, that would also go back to the ancient Greco-Roman world, too, because it was full of pantheism. Yes, I think it's very confusing because some people do see that he actually he writes the word God and can make the mistake of thinking that he does mean exactly yeah. what you and I mean by God, but he doesn't mean that at all. Sure. He means he talks about the Lord, but his idea of the Lord and God is very different than the Judeo-Christian view of God. So a lot of people get tied up with that and they can't tell the difference. Even a lot of people today, you ask them, well, do you believe in God? Yeah. But you start asking them questions and about what that really means, and you know, they usually have some pretty funny ideas what they think about God. And, of course, as Christians, you need to understand who Jesus Christ is and don't even understand who God is. So uh, there's a big, that's a big question, and uh, just because people use the term God doesn't really mean a whole lot. You know, Hegel, for example, believed in a form of pantheism, too. It wasn't necessarily nature worship, but he believed that the state was a form of pantheism. And so that the progression of the state showed God was evolving and developing himself. And the National Socialists, were they believed something similar to that as well, although not quite in Hegelian terms, but still it was there. Mm -hmm. And along with that goes this rejection, as you say, of human beings made in the image of God. Um, did yes, also... Human beings made in the image of God, you know, this is a very big doctrine because mm. uh, Genesis 1 opens, God made man in his image. And of course, man is a climax of God's creation on the sixth day. And from there, uh, God talks about responsibilities that he has. He says, subdue and fill the earth. And those are two commands from God that environmentalists uh, hate. There was a, a very famous article that you mentioned in your book, uh, written in the 1960s and published in the journal Science by Lynn White Jr. called The Historical Roots of Our Ecological Crisis. And uh, that seems to be a bit of a stage setter, really, for uh, many of these environmental uh, extreme views. Um, do you think that the the kind of view that was expressed in that article is, is rather similar to what some of the Nazis thought? Well, uh, I look at it this way. See, Lynn White, a lot of the things that I heard at Evergreen State College really were based on his article that he, you know, actually was a speech that he gave. And then, of course, they turned it into an article. I think it was in a science magazine. A lot of his ideas, he blamed Christianity, especially Western Christianity, for this idea. Man's above nature, therefore he can distort and twist nature to his own purposes. He can sacrifice nature to make money. And the idea of pillaging, you know, the Christians went in there and cut down all the trees and replaced them with churches. And uh, so the pagan worship was lost, and therefore respect for nature was also lost. It also makes a very important point, which a lot of people don't realize, is that Lynn White said that, look at uh, Christianity helped bring about uh, science as we understand it today, because uh, that's what science does. It's based on the fact that God made man in his image. He's above nature. Uh, and so, therefore, he can tinker with nature without uh, dishonoring the gods. Paganism, you couldn't tinker with nature because it was disallowed. That was something sacred. Well, Christianity comes along and says, no, God is distinct from nature. God's above nature. Therefore, tinkering with nature is not going to play with God. So it was okay. It gave the scientists freedom to do so. So that connection between science and Christianity, the birth of science and Christianity, Lynn White attacked because he believed that science later on brought this confusion and uh, led to the Industrial Revolution and led to distortion and destruction of nature. And he blamed Western Christianity in particular for that whole process. And so uh, a lot of the, what I would call American environmentalists, blame Christians for this. What people don't understand is that 100 years before that, uh, the same discussion was also um, d discussed in Germany, and they blamed the Jews for the same type of processes. A little bit different, but almost the same, almost parallel. And so at the same time that, for example, Henry David Thoreau was criticizing the Protestants for coming into America, cutting down all the trees and turning nature into uh, you know, churches and, and marketplaces, at the same time we have Germans in Germany complaining about the Jews doing the same type of destructive activity in nature in Germany. So the, the, those are those ideas are parallel. In fact, in Germany, it's much more robust, you know, the ideas being taught because Henry David Thoreau was all by himself. No one cared about him. He was a, he was a loner. But in Germany, these things were taught in the academic halls of the institutions and the colleges and universities. So it had a much bigger impact. Indeed, there seem to have been a, a lot of influences, a lot of historical trends, um, intellectual movements, cultural factors going on in Germany that all contributed to this way of thinking. And I'd like to ask you about a number of those factors now, but I'm very conscious that this is so complex that it's going to, it could be very easy to get into all sorts of, you know, as I said to you before the interview, get into the spider's web and not know how to come out. So what I'd like to do is to break it down into a few points and ask you about each thing individually. So could I first 
ask you to explain to us the historical role of German romanticism and mysticism in the development of this worldview? Well, usually Goethe uh, is usually the first man that's uh, typically uh, presented as being the father of German romanticism, the idea that you want to recover uh, some basic uh, something you're you're going to go back to something you know industry was starting to take off during his time he lived in the 1700s early 1800s and uh, the world was becoming a little bit more complex and marketplaces were taking over industry was doing uh, things and people started to notice even back then that uh, it was destroying nature you know that and Goethe was a part of this romantic uh, movement and the idea of romanticism is that uh, feelings and um, senses these things are more important than thought they've criticized thought as being leading to the Industrial Revolution, you know, the scientific emphasis going back to those Christian roots where God is above nature and man is above nature as well. And uh, so they would start criticizing thought itself and started to emphasize things like uh, emotion, feelings. Later on, Romanticism becomes existentialism, the idea where existence actually trumps thought, human thought. So now nature itself existing as it is, is more important mm than uh, human thought, because nature, of course, is all-encompassing. And later on, of course, uh, existentialism, this natural environmental existentialism becomes what we call deep ecology, thanks uh, largely to Aldo Leopold. That would be after World War II, or actually during the during World War II and after. And so now we have deep ecology. So you start out with German romanticism, very simple, a little bit primitive. It advances to what we call German existentialism, especially with men like Schopenhauer and then Nietzsche, of course, Heidegger plays a, a role in this later on under National Socialism, and eventually it becomes deep ecology. So this mix that we have here of romanticism and also existentialism, it seems to me creates an atmosphere where you can say at the same time, I want to conceive of a, a past that was better. And yet at the same time, I, I, don't, I don't have to be bothered about truth. I can simply say, I will that this is so, and I'm just going to act to bring this about. So it, in a sense, has nothing to do with truth at all. Exactly. That's the heart of existentialism. You see... Under Schopenhauer, he, he himself taught, and he, you know, he goes back to the 1800s, uh, he emphasized the idea of will is more important than human thought. And there's a truth in this. You know, most people, they, they do things, okay? They, they will things, they don't necessarily think about it. But then they turn this into a doctrine to where will is always more important than thought, almost like thought is an afterthought, really unimportant. And, but this is really the heart of existentialism. And so uh, Schopenhauer said the will is more important than human thought. Now, Nietzsche comes along, and he loved Schopenhauer, too, and he emphasized will even stronger. In fact, he thought Schopenhauer was a little bit kind of a sissy because he liked, um, you know, he, he believed in a doctrine called pity, especially toward animals. So Schopenhauer thought that if we're nice to animals, we'll be nice to people. So he reversed the Judeo-Christian you know, worldview where, you know, love God and, and love your neighbor. Uh, it's almost like love animals and love people. And so he becomes really the foundation for uh, environmental ethics and existentialism. Nietzsche comes along and he emphasizes really the manliness of will because you look around and, uh, you know, man exercises his will and uh, you can no longer use Judeo-Christian values to judge that willpower. And, of course, with nature, uh, who's going to judge Who's going to judge these things? No, there is no God that's going to judge these things anymore. So now he's going to emphasize willpower even more, the will to power. Mm-hmm. And this becomes a very important doctrine under National Socialism. And so their idea of willpower is going to be also play a big part in what they were doing. So they had these ideas about racism, and then they connected this to Nietzsche's uh, willpower, and also it's rooted in existentialism, where nature is more important than human thought. And so a lot of these strands really came together under National Socialism, and of course they blew up the circuitry of all of Europe, and led to a lot of uh, evil things that um, you know left a lot of people. You know, by the millions, dead. Indeed, and indeed. it's a very serious, uh, very serious effusion of a lot of uh, ideas that are not good, that are anti-God, anti-Jews, anti-Christian, anti-Judeo-Christian, anti-Bible, and those things all seem to come together all at once. Deep ecology uh, becomes uh, very important to a lot of people, and Aldo Leopold is the uh, key figure that usually is associated with that. But Martin Heidegger also plays a part of that because he interpreted Nietzsche for the for National Socialist and Heidegger was a big Nazi and don't get this a lot of people have covered for him trying to say he's not and of course he's fundamental to the entire uh, modern outlook today postmodernism and uh, yet he was he was a, a an avid Nazi during his during the day and now what it, after he saw what National Socialist did with willpower he interesting he had changed he called it let it be so the idea of let it be ecology let it be you know he was anti-technology 
that really did not happen until after World War II when you saw what happened with the willpower. So if you think about this from a historical point of view, okay, uh, Schopenhauer knocks down human thought. Nietzsche does this even more and makes willpower, you know, biological instincts and willpower more important. Heidegger believed that for a while until after National Socialism and after National Socialism, and then Heidegger ruins the will. He says, let it be. And so now there's really nothing left of man at all. Uh, he, had, he has no thought and has no will. And now we're just a part of nature that's just sort of moving along. We need to be in harmony with it. Mm-hmm. And um, that's where we're at today. And it seems that in the hands of somebody like uh, Adolf Hitler, he could just basically come along and uh, take the Nietzschean doctrine that, well, famously, God is dead, and uh, essentially say, well, nature is is God, for all intents and purposes, and I believe that I am, by an act of my will, I am representing the processes of nature, and uh, I will say what's what, as a pure act of will. And that's really that's that's existentialism under mm-hmm. under as Germans understood it. People, I, I was shocked as the more I studied this, the, how existentialism really played a fundamental role in National Socialism. I, I was just stunned by this. Mm-hmm. Now there are people who contest that uh, Hitler himself was familiar with Nietzsche's thought, but you don't agree with that in the book, do you? No, no, he was there. Triumph of the Will, for crying out loud. Lenny Riefenstahl, that's a big documentary. It's a famous documentary. The most famous one of all is based on Nietzsche's ideas. Now, the National Socialists may have distorted it. I mean, they may not have understood Nietzsche totally, but uh, Hitler's favorite philosophy, number one, was Schopenhauer. Number two was Nietzsche. And this is according to uh, Hitler's buddy in Vienna. They went to school together. Actually, they didn't go to school together. They went to separate schools, but they lived in the same house. This guy said uh, his name is uh, Kubitschek. He said Hitler loved books. He just devoured libraries. His favorite philosopher was Schopenhauer, secondly, uh, Nietzsche. And then uh, the other thing he liked was German mythology, according to this Kubitschek. So I, I, I don't have any reason to doubt that. Schopenhauer, his thought is in a lot of things he says. Hitler's table talk is peppered with what I would call existentialism. I, I don't see any how you can deny that Nietzsche played a, a role in uh, National Socialist thought. Yeah, I'm not at all surprised to hear that, because every time I have read anything by Nietzsche, all the time I'm thinking to myself, good heavens, it's amazing how this chimes with yeah. the Nazis. Oh, I know. Yeah. Now, Nietzsche wasn't anti-Semitic, okay, but he was anti-Christian. You know, he, he may have talked about how the Germans were not necessarily the best, and he complained about the, how they were becoming a bunch of sissies. But see, Hitler thought they were solving that problem. And he's going to use his racism rooted in nature and existentialism and and social Darwinism to bring this about. Yeah, it's a, re- a real noxious mix of, of ideas, oh, and, and 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 this is why it's such a difficult thing to talk about. Um, but one of the other things which seems on the surface to be contradictory. I mean, we've talked about romanticism, we've talked about existentialism, and yet also in this mix, they had this view that they were somehow also heirs to the Enlightenment. Uh, and yet, you know, so often we think of romanticism as being a reaction against the Enlightenment, but somehow they managed to fuse the two together. And you say in your book that the key individual in this was. Ernst Haeckel. Could you explain why he's so important in this? Well, Haeckel, uh, and you, you think about evolutionary theory did this anyway, but Haeckel really reinforced this is what he took um, Darwin's thought and turned this into what we call social Darwinism. And then, of course, he also put the Germans on top of totem pole and he used science to do so. And so his idea is that science leads to uh, a view of ev- the evolution of, of races and Germany. And in his view, is on top of the on top of the Aryan totem pole. And so he really provides a basis for that kind of thinking. And uh, he believed that he was an Enlightenment scholar, you know, although, however, uh, Haeckel criticized the Enlightenment doctrines of man being above nature. So the National Socialists would disagree with some of the ideas of, of the Enlightenment, but they, of course, went along with some ideas about progress because they themselves believed that they were progressing, part of the progressive movement. But they actually uh, criticized the idea that man was above nature. And then Haeckel comes along and then and really emphasizes this, and he uses science uh, to actually cut down, cut man down to size. And so uh, now we got science, so-called scientific enlightenment, caught up with uh, these ideas now too, and they get fused in with existentialism and also romanticism all at the same time. And of course, uh, the romantics, their their idea of science was to have nature look into nature. See, man was no longer above nature as an observer. He is a part of nature, and so therefore he that was their idea for looking into nature. Nature looking into nature is no longer a man observing nature. It's now one part of nature looking into another. And so really the whole scientific enterprise is uprooted, in my opinion, right there at its roots right there and turns it upside down because 
animals can't be scientists. Mm-hmm. Indeed, one of the points that uh, the philosopher Stanley Jackie makes is that one of the aspects of being made in the image of God is to have an intellect and reflect the <laughs> the intellect of the Creator, and therefore be able to understand the world that He has created. Well, this is this is all undermined by that doctrine, isn't it? Yes, yeah. So that science now becomes, you know, the environmentalism is in control of science, and so is Darwinism. And even though Darwinism basically plunges man back into nature, so man really can't be an observer anymore intellectually, and yet so-called Darwinism is supposed to be the biggest science there is, even though uh, they don't allow for people really to sit down and think because man's just a part of nature anymore. He's just an animal. Is it true also that Ernst Haeckel had some rather mystical ideas about nature at the same time? Yeah, he did, but he would never uh, admit that he was mystical. I mean, he, you know, he always tried to use science to undergird his thoughts, even though they were cultic, really, in a lot of ways, but he always used science to do so. You know, you, even today, you got some scientific, a lot of people use science to undergird mysticism. This occurs in the Eastern thinking, too. So there's a lot of scientific thought caught up uh, with Eastern dogmas. So that should not surprise us, actually. Okay, I'd like to move on to some of the key characteristics as to how some of these ideas played out, these romantic, existential, uh, sort of distortion of uh, science ideas all played out. Uh, let, me, let me just ask you a few things. One thing, there's this disturbing contrast between many of the Nazis' attitudes towards animals and their attitude towards human beings, whereas some of them will say, you know, they loved animals, and yet they seem to have a tremendous disdain and, uh, towards human beings. How do these ideas that we've been talking about help to explain such an attitude? Well, Schopenhauer uh, started this whole process. He, he loved animals, and he blamed uh, Jews and Christians in Genesis 1 for destruction of nature and for being mean to animals, and he made a big deal out of it, and uh, he wanted to get back to um, pity for animals, take care of them. And he said we need to get rid of the Judeo-Christian worldview in order to do that. Very interesting enough. In fact, I got a quote that basically says that, especially he was anti-Semitic. In fact, he wrote uh, in one of his books, a very famous book, I'll just quote the book to you, or quote his quote here. He says, we owe the animals not mercy but justice, and the dead often remains unpaid in Europe, the continent that is permeated with the Jews. It is obviously high time in Europe that Jewish views on nature should be expelled from Europe. And then other quotes, the fault lies with the Jewish view that regards the animals as something manufactured for man's use. And he says, again, these are the effects of Genesis 1, generally the whole Jewish way of looking at nature. So Arthur Schopenhauer really started this whole anti-Semitic environmental diatribe against the Jews. And uh, his, his idea is that we need to love animals and therefore love people at the same time because he believed nature was coextensive with each other. Man was not above nature. And so, therefore, he thought that's how we're going to solve that problem. Now, the Nazis will come along, and they're not going to have any pity because they use Nietzsche's doctrine of will to power. So, you know, Nietzsche was closer to them, and Nietzsche was, of course, better, more evolution after Schopenhauer. And so they're going to tie into his ideas. However, uh, Hitler loved animals. There, there's no question about this. And, and this goes back to Schopenhauer, who is Hitler's favorite philosopher. In fact, uh, Hitler could quote Schopenhauer verbatim. And yeah, I've, I've read through Schopenhauer's stuff, and I'm telling you, it, it's difficult to read. It's really hard. I mean, Heidegger's worse, of course, but uh, Schopenhauer isn't that easy either. Uh, but Hitler could quote him uh, verbatim. And one of the first things the Nazis did in 1933 was pass an animal rights law. 1930, people don't understand this. I mean, that was almost like the first order of business. Uh, they passed a, uh, animal protection laws to protect nature, and interestingly enough, it was geared specifically against the Jews because, you know, the Jews have commands in the Old Testament relative to blood. They cannot eat the blood. Well, how do you get the blood off of the animal? Well, uh, they had a special way of doing that to make their meat kosher. So they would, uh, in some cases, they would poke a hole into, uh, you know, the neck of an animal, and all the blood would come squirting out while it was still alive. And one of the things the Nazis did was to outlaw such practices being something extremely uh, mean to animals. So in 1933, they passed an animal rights law. And then later, later uh, 34, they, they were the first country in the world to uh, protect the wolves. And then, of course, after that, they implemented direwald practices, which means eternal forest. So they started again to the idea of sustainable development with regard to forest, how we cut them down, how we preserve them, and how it is to be done properly. And so they were at the vanguard of that, too. 
And then in 1935, they also passed the Right Nature Protection Act, which really is at the heart of a lot of environmental ideas today, because what they wanted to do was to regulate the entire landscapes of Germany, and then also connect it to sustainable development, so that things could be done harmoniously and in order, uh, based on the latest scientific spatial sciences, but also environmentally sound. And so a lot of these ideas uh, that Germany was all excited about, people don't realize, uh, environmental laws were passed first. And then, of course, the racial laws in Nuremberg came about the same time in 1935, right after that. But there's a foundation of nature first in National Socialism in, in uh, the early part of its plans. And then later on, these other things showed up. But it's all rooted in a lot of these ideas. And Schopenhauer really is at the heart of it because Hitler loved it so much. See, a lot of these German scholars and philosophers are really smart. And they have all kinds of wonderful things to say from an intellectual point of view. But then you start talking to Jews with these people and they, they blow a gasket. And Schopenhauer was the same way. And by the way, so is Kant isn't a whole lot better. But Schopenhauer was worse. And so uh, th there's this anti-Semitism, which is just almost inexplicable, that shows up. And these guys, uh, they stop thinking and they become emotional. And uh, this just went on and on. And eventually it built up into what we call National Socialism. Uh, by the way, another important person is Richard Wagner, you know, the composer. He also loved Indeed. Schopenhauer. There's a lot of animal rights stuff in his thinking, too. And, of course, Hitler loved Wagner, too. That was his favorite composer. And Wagner provided the musical background for the Nazis. It's amazing that the category of nature with a capital N seems to be so central to what you're saying and seems to make so much sense of uh, trying to understand their attitude, particularly towards being so humane towards animals and yet being so despicable towards the Jews. Because if, if you define the animal world as being natural, but you define the Jewish race as being unnatural for whatever reason you prejudices you hold, that strangely makes sense of what they did. So they could say that the, oh, well, the Aryans were the, uh, the heirs to the natural order, we're the most developed form. But uh, this part of the human race is not in accordance with nature, whereas the, the, the animals, they're in accordance with nature. It all makes a kind of twisted sense if you accept their view of nature with a capital N and their particular interpretation of that and the, the injecting of their prejudices into that category. Yeah, you know, see, Schopenhauer really never thought this through. It's, if, you, if nature is everything and nature defines what is right and wrong, then basically that's true. Well, in nature, we have predator, we have prey, we have wolves, we got grizzly bears, we got all kinds of bad things in nature where animals eat up other animals. So the Nazis uh, will take that view on nature and says, well, this is what happens in nature. We can do it, too. Mm. And that's the heart of the, This is also existentially based, too. This is what nature teaches us. This is what goes on in nature. In fact, uh, Hitler's idea is, is that if we don't if we don't get back to nature, we're going to lead to a race of people that's degenerate because we don't have enough wolves out there to, to clean up the you know, to make people strong and keep keep the herd healthy. Eugenics is a part of this process as well, so that they were very concerned about this. And science and eugenics all connected here. So actually, we have here an example in in the use of nature, an example of a tool of totalitarianism, a kind of collectivist tool. We say what nature is. We define what nature is, and everybody has to bow to that definition. Exactly. Yeah, nature doesn't tell us anything, but uh, they're going to tell us what nature means. And, of course, environmentalism is doing this, too, especially today. So nature can be interpreted all kinds of different ways. One of them was National Socialism. It's not the only one, but that was one of them. You brought up also a few minutes ago the modern concept, uh, at least as it seems to me anyway, of sustainable development, but uh, it seems that it's older than I thought. Could you explain how this is connected to their ideas of Lebensraum or living space and their blood and soil or blut and bloden doctrine that they had? How, how are these things all connected? Well, uh, uh, Riel is the primary. He's really the father of what we call this sustainable development. And he goes back to, you know, he was born in 1823, died in 1897. And uh, he's a very important, he was a German nationalist. Uh, a lot of national socialists uh, loved him. In fact, uh, the German army also made a copy of, of his books. He, he wrote a famous uh, trilogy of books called the, the Natural History of Germany. And uh, by the way, that book was republished and, and given to all the, apparently to the leaders of the Nazi Germany in the East, they republished the book and handed them out to folks to remind them what they were doing in the Eastern territories. Anyway, he's a father of sustainable development, and he was a romantic at the time, and he complained about how the Jew, he was especially anti-Semitic. He really blamed the Jews and their rootless ideas for destroying the German landscape with all these uh, international cosmopolitan cities. 
And he also becomes the heart of what we call the folk movement or Das Volk. Volk means people in Germany. It also has racial connotations. It doesn't simply mean people, but it means more than that. And he strongly emphasized the hearty and healthy character of the German Volk or the German people, the German race. And he believed that the most authentic people were the people of the countryside, you know, the, the strong people. And he emphasized the rights of wilderness, one of the first people to do this from a political point of view. And he became the father, German romantic champion of forests and wetlands. He loved wetlands, for example. So he's the father of wetland uh, preservation as well. So he's a really fundamental figure. And he goes all the way back to the 1800s. A lot of National Socialists loved him. And of course, he hated the Jews along with it. Here's some quotes from Riel, just to give you an idea of some of the thinking. If in this scheme, the rootless Jews was a purveyor of this corrupted, citified city, the forester was his antithesis, the embodiment of ethnic authenticity rooted like his trees in the ancient earth of the fatherland. So they were viewing the German fatherland as in contrast to the Jews who are rootless, and of course they're, they're foreigners, and then they bring all their international finances into town, and then they corrupt uh, the entire relationship of society and turn it upside down and turn it all to a marketplace, and then they make money and we're at the bottom of the, of the food chain. And so they complained about all these things, and uh, Riel was fundamental in that whole discussion, and he did it from an environmental point of view. So this is the Blut and Bloden doctrine. This is where this comes from, isn't it? The, the people of a certain yeah. blood belong to a certain soil, and this is a very important idea for them. Well, he emphasized two things, ethnicity, that would be the people and nature. And so there you have your um, environmental preservation, and you also have your people uh, rooted in, in, in the land, that are harmonious with the land, and they're based on that land. And this really becomes the basis for what later becomes blood and soil uh, under national socialism. So the idea of German blood on German soil, and uh, German soil also included in a strong bent toward environmentalism. You have a clean people, and you want to have a clean environment, and the Germans put those two things together. And by the way, you know, the idea of a mother nature sissyism, you know, that a lot of environmentalists are presented as today, I don't think it's really true. But nonetheless, because of Nietzsche and because of Riel, they emphasize a masculine form of environmentalism. And the Nazis also picked up on this and, and they're going to they're gonna use it as well. Nietzsche, for example, talked about earth-based values in contrast to Judeo-Christian values. You know, biology and instinct are more important than Ten Commandments and we need to have a new Superman in the future of, uh, who can come up with new ideas and how to handle the fact that God is dead. So, you know, a lot of these things came together uh, under National Socialism and it came blood and soil. And the man to do this was Dare. He was the original um, teacher on this. He was Hitler's agricultural minister for a number of years. He was also Himmler's mentor. And so uh, there's also another aspect to the environmental movement in Germany is another thing that Himmler and Dare wanted to do was to um, get Germans back to the land. And so they looked at what was happening to the city. Uh, the Jews are running the city and there's all being based on marketplace values and, and there's nothing good happening here. And of course, the Germans are getting impoverished because of this process. So they want what they wanted to do is get people out of the city, which was weakening them from a eugenic point of view. Let's get them back to the land. So there was a big back to the land movement that these men were trying to orchestrate. And what they did, they set up these big camps and they put these people to help out farmers. And so they learned how to be hardy and healthy workers on the, you know, get them back to the farm, get them back to, to more natural surroundings so that people understand what real life is all about. And so that's what they did. And they tried to impl implement this and they were successful to some extent. So there's another aspect of Nazi environmentalism was this back-to-the-land movement, and Himmler uh, was really uh, all for this type of stuff. And it's interesting that uh, a lot of people would, I think, perhaps disagree with what you're saying here and, and think of uh, Nazism as being really very capitalist and uh, industrial and think of it in terms of very much being on the right wing of things. How do you react to that sort of criticism? Well, that's all socialist propaganda. That's all leftist propaganda. It's, it's completely false. I mean, I, the more I look into this, the more I realize how, how silly that is. Uh, the idea that National Socialism was a bunch of right-wing Christian capitalists is foolish. Number one, they called themselves socialist. I mean, yeah. you know, they may, it may have been National Socialist, but it's a form of socialism, no matter how you look at this. Sure, and rather hidden by the term Nazi, of course. Sure. The Nazis did a lot of left-wing ideas, and their idea really was to compromise with the capitalists. See, Hitler did not, what he didn't like about the left was that their ideas of equality, the working man, having being equal with everybody. And of course, communism was based on the equality of man. Hitler and the Nazis, interestingly enough, said that goes back to the Judeo-Christian value where man is equal, made in God's image. So this is why we reject that. 
This is why he also identified communism as a Jewish thing, didn't he? Exactly. Yes. And, and <laughs> you know, he, yeah, his idea, when he attacked communism, when he went after Russia, this was a, this was a Jewish doctrine, you know, the, the Jewish ideas. Hmm. It's because the Russians had adopted this false Jewish Judeo-Christian values. Everybody's equal. Uh, nature teaches us that people are not equal and that, that people, that racism is at the heart of evolutionary activity. And so therefore we need to emphasize this. If we don't, we're going to lose the Volk. We're going to get weaker and weaker. Okay, so how, how do you feel that their industrialism then actually fits with all these environmental concerns that they had? You know, that's a really interesting problem, and it's an interesting question. We even have the same thing today, too, and it really hasn't changed any. What the Nazis did was to try to fuse these ideas together so that we have, they understood that man is a racial being, okay, and he progresses, so we can't get rid of the fact that man is man. Secondly, they believed in nature as well. And when they brought their racism and their environmentalism together, what did that do? It created sustainable development. And really, the Nazi National Socialism was the first government to bring in, um, you know, to try to put this into practice, sustainable development as a policy. And a lot of the things that they had, the plans they had for the Eastern territories, for example, in Poland, Belarus, Ukraine, uh, they were going to turn this into a garden park of sustainable development where industry was perfectly harmonious with nature. Uh, Hitler was going to cover Ukraine with windmills, for example. Uh, they were going to have ma master planned communities, uh, you know, and different, they got frontier farms and wilderness preservation. They were going to have big hunting grounds for Hermann Goering. They would be all wild. They were going to bring back animals. Uh, they had all kinds of plans uh, that were green plans for the East after they took it over. Because in their minds, the communists destroyed nature and they were going to take care of it. And also, uh, there's not enough people anyway. And so we need to get rid of a bunch of people. And there's too many people, I should say. And so they were going to emphasize themselves at the expense of others. Sure. So too many of the wrong kind of people. Yeah, exactly. The non-natural people. Yeah. And sustainable development is really is at the heart of that argument, too. And in fact, you know, they had discussions about this in the 1930s between Dare and some other what you would call more environmentally minded national socialists. They had talks about these things. And when they finally came together to settle the problems, they came up with sustainable development. What they called it back then was spatial planning. That it goes back to Lebensraum. Raum means space, and of course, Leben means life, but uh, living space, literally. And so what they were going to do is turn that Lebensraum into really sustainable development. We're not against capitalists per se, but we don't want them controlling everything because the, the Jews will take advantage of us there. And of course, we don't believe everybody's equal, like the communists want to bring about. That's a fairy tale that cannot be. We're going to put these ideas together, fuse them together, and therefore we'll have sustainable development. And these were their ideals, but I, I guess really they had to sacrifice those ideals when it came to the war machine. And that's where, I suppose, their concentration on industry ruined these plans. Well, they, they, when they, the Nazis developed industry, they weren't doing it for industry. They weren't doing it for the capitalists. They were doing it to make war. Their, their whole economy was a war economy. It's not a capitalist economy. So it wasn't done for uh, free market purposes. It was done strictly to you know, make them strong, to, to develop the army. That's number one. And then, by the way, uh, they actually had sustainable development plans that was also put over the industry with regard to uh, even the war machine. So, I mean, I've come across documents that even showed that. In fact, a whole uh, whole series of things they had implemented. So the, the four-year plan, for example, was under was under the spatial science of, of national socialism. And of course, that was part of their environmentalism. Okay, so at this point, I'd, I'd like to ask you why it is that you gave as the subtitle to your book, this phrase, the green sacrifice of the Judeo-Christian worldview in the Holocaust. What do you actually mean by that? Well, the Holocaust, that word, it goes back to ancient Hebrew, and it, and it means whole burnt offering. It means sacrifice. And then when I started to really look into the issues of what happened, you know, the, the fact that nature is first with Nazis and the fact that they had an, incorporated a lot of environmental ideas and even had plans for the eastern territories to turn them into a sustainable garden park for Germans to enjoy. And then you start looking at what was happening in these, um, these death camps uh, where Jews were killed. For example, in, in Treblinka, you know, I, I went there uh, a couple of years ago. I was just shocked. You know, on one side of the camp, Treblinka was this beautiful garden park for the Germans to enjoy, uh, for the SS officials. They had a little zoo. They had a fox recovery program. And then right next door, of course, uh, they were killing Jews by the hundreds of thousands. What they would do, that, of course, the trains would back up into the, these death camps and unload everybody. They'd separate themselves from all their possessions. 
And then, of course, even their clothes as well, eventually. But they would walk them down this aisle. And uh, interesting enough, there was a sign that was put over the aisle where it said something to the effect, you get to go to heaven now, something along these lines. And, you know, translate, you probably can't do it properly, but it's time to go to heaven, so to speak. And, of course, they were making fun of the Jews. And, of course, they were going to kill them and put them in through the gas chambers. Right before they walked in there, it was a beautiful, uh, the most beautiful flower garden was planted right before, in Treblinka, for example, right, right in the place where they were about ready to get killed. Then after they tore down Treblinka and ripped it all up, they replanted it. And what they put on top of the corpses and all the things they did in Treblinka was lupin flowers. And lupin is the wolf flower. And, of course, Hitler loved wolves. He called the SS his pack of wolves. You know, he's cleaning up eugenics and cleaning up the herd, and we're going to get rid of the Jews. And I believe that there's a strong connection here with what they were doing with these lupin flowers. So there's more to the story than simply, you know, they, they're trying to look for some nice flower to cover everything up. Do you think that they were actually thinking in terms of looking to the past again, to a pagan past, and actually thinking in terms of a kind of pagan sacrifice that was going on here? We, I, I can't prove it, but I do know that Hitler was aware of the practice. In fact, go back to his buddy, uh, Kubitschek, for example. Uh, he was a friend of his, going back to his times in Austria when he lived there. and went to, They went to school, separate schools, and he was uh, a witness of Hitler and lived with him. He said one night Hitler got all excited. And he was up all night, you know, the young Hitler, and writing up things. And, uh, you know, he finally he asked Hitler, what are you doing? And he says, well, I'm writing up a play. At this time, Hitler had loved, uh, you know, he, he already loved Wagner, for example. He was writing up a play. And he looked at the play, and Hitler described it to him. And basically, it was a, it was a human sacrifice that was being carried out where the Germans were going to protect themselves from the um, invaders. And, of course, they were Christian invaders. The whole scene was wrapped around a, a sacrifice that was going to that was going to be practiced under the oak trees, and so Hitler was well aware of this practice. I know it because of what Kubitschek said, but the very fact that Kubitschek saw how excited and, and Hitler got over this thing, it's almost like Kubitschek when he writes this, it's like he realized there's a connection here between the Holocaust, what later happened, and what happened that night when Hitler, when he was so excited about you know his plans for the future of Germany, we're going to protect ourselves. And a very interesting um, little uh, tidbit from uh, Hitler's history. Secondly, uh, you have oak trees that are very incidentally or coincidentally placed. I don't think they were coincidental at all, but they're around the entrance into Auschwitz. In fact, that famous tree you always see where it says, work makes you free. Uh, there's an oak tree sitting right there. And uh, Hitler loved the oak trees. Uh, he had them planted all over the Reich. They, they planted oaks all over the Poland, too, to Germanize Poland as well. So... Oak trees are very important to the Nazis. Hitler passed out oak trees to all the gold medal winners, for example, the 1936 Olympics. Uh, Jesse Owens of America, the famous um, runner, he got four of them. And other people got other oak trees, too. And by the way, uh, even in Buchenwald, which is not a death camp, although people died there, but it's more it's a concentration camp. Uh, there's a famous uh, oak tree that's there. And it was Goethe's oak, his, famous, his favorite oak. He used to sit underneath and meditate. And this is a big oak tree. And when the Nazis built the camp, they built the camp really almost around the oak tree. They preserved the oak tree. And uh, wow, you know, here's this oak tree and tribute to romanticism sitting right in the middle of this concentration camp. So it is involved. Now, how involved? You can debate it. But my, my thinking is it's very involved. In the fact that nature is first and that their ideas of Darwinism was defined by nature and nature is king. So I call it the green sacrifice of the Judeo-Christian worldview. And that ecology did play an important role in the Holocaust. You know, the Jews were considered unnatural, and we need to get back to the natural man of Germany. So that's what my book is largely all about, explaining that process. Yeah. And uh, in that subtitle there, you use the phrase Judeo-Christian. And uh, of course, we normally think of the vast majority of people who were murdered were Jews, of course. But as we know, some Christians were, as a, a number of other different types of people, gypsies, homosexuals, you know, um, um, Jehovah's Witnesses, and various different categories were also murdered in those situations there. But a lot of people would point to Christianity at the time in Germany and would be very critical, and I think in many ways correctly, and see how there were many in the churches at the time who didn't raise objection to what the Nazis were doing and uh, were often content to have a kind of, you know, live and let live attitude. Um, of course, there were famously people like Dietrich Bonhoeffer who did object and paid for that with their lives. Um, but you say that one of the main reasons why there was this inertia in many of the churches and a reluctance to speak out about what was going on was that German Christianity at the time had been kind of sapped of its spiritual power 
by years and years of liberal theology and higher criticism in the universities. Could you tell us how those influences watered down German Christianity at the time? do, Do you think that is the explanation as to why so many people did capitulate? Well, I think it's a big part of it. Uh, you know, the, the the Bible is no longer believed anymore. It was no longer taught. And when they did teach it, it was taught according to Hegel's evolutionary philosophy of, of religion. Mm. And so it took away its, its biblical basis and um, distorted it and then turned it into really, a, you know, interestingly enough, if you look at what was happening, is that uh, thanks to Hegel and some other people, is that, you know, Germany becomes... Um, you know, they were get, getting rid of the Judeo-Christian worldview and replacing it with like a, a German-only uh, worldview. And, uh, of course, rooted in nature later on under different romantic ideas. But that idea of nature first was always going to be against uh, Judeo-Christian values. And if, if you look at a lot of the men, uh, the higher critics, they were natural theologians. Okay, you look at, you know, the, they went back to natural theology. And, and a lot of their ideas of natural theology were informed by Hegel's evolutionary development of religion. And so that natural theology is going to be opposed to Judeo-Christian values or to the Bible. And so they, you know, they spent a lot of time attacking the Bible because they had, they based it on other, other principles and other, um, other foundations. Indeed, it's it's very fascinating how uh, scholarly work at that time was so very influenced by Hegel in particular, and they didn't really realize that that was a philosophical influence. They seemed to think that what they were doing was real history, but as soon as you realize that there is that dialectical view going on, you strip that away and do real history, you find that many of the higher critical views that they were bringing to bear upon the Bible fall apart. Yeah, it's a philosophy of history. I mean, that's basically absolutely. It's a philosophy. It's yeah. not, it's, I mean, you know, some things were historically based, but most of it was is based on a philosophy of religious development or even state development or political development history. And basically what Hegel is explaining is how we got to where we are. Of course, Germany's on top of the totem pole again. And it basically, he said, we were at the end of history. Part of the progress of us getting there, we're, we're at the heart of it all. And he thought Germany was. And uh, so that nationalism, so to speak, that, that statism, uh, is going to become fundamental to their worldview. And Hegel is at the heart of that, even though uh, a lot of people later on will criticize Hegel for being too attached to the Enlightenment, too philosophical and not enough rooted into nature. But that's another story. Still, some of his ideas carry through, and they still carry through even a lot of things that we're doing today. When we teach any kind of uh, religious class in America and the academic halls, or even in England, I'm sure, too. Basically, it's Hegel's doctrine of religious development and history. Absolutely. It's amazing how those ideas, although they've been discredited in many ways, they do continue. Yeah, this guy was a nut, you know, really, because he he believed that he represented the end of all history. Okay, almost like he was a god. Mm. It's just stunning how these things have, um, you know, he's at the heart of modern academia on so many different levels. It's just amazing. Now, I have asked you, quite a lot really about the the ways in which you think these ideas connect with what's going on in the world today and i just wonder whether you wanted to add anything to this because uh, recently we were talking to michael shaw of freedom advocates about the united nations agenda 21 program and its push to increasingly move the world in the direction of sustainable development now i know that term has come up several times in what you said now that as i said to him you know that sounds a really good idea we should develop in sustainable ways but It was very apparent in the conversation that we had that this idea is very authoritarian and it has some very distinctly anti-humanistic ideas within it. And even the concept of population control came up in what we were talking about. So my question really is, do you see a substantial worldview connection between the ideas that we've been talking about here in Nazi Germany, many of which purported to be environmental and the anti-humanistic tendencies that we see going on in the extreme uh, environmentalism today. Do you think there really are some real connections there? Well, of course, there's real connections. They're not exactly the same, but they are. They're pretty close. Uh, For example, you know, before National Socialism, environmentalism was actually based on a lot of racial ideas. See, racism is just one form of anti-humanism. Now, after the war, uh, they became anti-human in general. Which in some cases, it may, if they keep on going with this stuff, it may be worse because they're talking about population control. And of course, we have a lot more people than we did even in the 20th century. That population control uh, is a, a very concerning. Now, at this point, they're going to try to do it through um, birth control and all that type of stuff. But 
we learn from history, and I think people need to pay attention to what happened under National Socialism. These things can get carried away, and that doesn't mean everything that National Socialists did uh, is, is exactly equitable with what we're doing in environmentalism, but there's still mm. a lesson to be learned here. So in a sense, there's a kind of trial run of some of these ideas yeah. when, they're given, when they're given full flow. Yeah, and if you, if you keep on taking away people's freedom, which is what environmentalism is doing, the bad guy invariably is going to show up because people have no freedom to stop him. And so we keep on taking away our property rights for the sake of, a, of, of this mother nature, whoever she may be, has never been identified. Of course, Gaia, they call her Gaia. Uh, yeah, there's, there's a, there are some ideas that are, that are related, and a lot of German ideas are still with us today. Germany, in my opinion, has always been at the heart of the environmental movement. So a lot of their ideas about sustainable development really go back to Germany. They're not racially defined today, okay, but they're still um, – there's still some many parallel uh, ideas that are out there. And uh, sustainable development was something the Nazis emphasized for totalitarian purposes with a racial tinge to it. Now, of course, there's no racism necessarily, but there is some interesting um, ethnicity involved. You know, with, some, with regard to uh, some of the ideas, environmentally speaking, they want to use something called bioregionalism, for example, to put everybody in their place, keep them there, prevent them from going traveling, uh, carbon, you know, for uh, getting on a plane and polluting the atmosphere and going to different places. And of course, they want to put everybody in their own place uh, with regard to travel, cars, all this type of stuff. Uh, that really is rooted in the Lebensraum tradition, where you have your own little enclave, you know, your own people in your own land. And that's exactly what some of these environmentalists, radical environmentalists want to do. They want to keep everybody in their own place, their own land, their own ethnicity, their own place, indigenous to their own environment. And a lot of the Nazis also had very similar indigenous ideas, uh, not only racist, but also indigenous. And they believed they were indigenous to Germany. And that Hitler also believed that the Aryans you know, were in control of uh, Europe anyway. And so he was his idea, doing what they were doing, was to recover uh, the Aryans and give, it back to Europe, give the Europe back to Aryans. So there are some similar connections, but of course they're a little bit different too. And I don't know whether you agree with me, but I think that one of the perhaps the main root uh, similarity between these two camps that we're thinking of here is this view of humanity, where human beings are not special. Yeah. And if that is the case, then it's up to any elite that comes along, whether it's Hitler or whether it's a Club of Rome or whoever, to say, yeah. well, we can now engineer this. We can have those who are fit to survive, that we'll allow those to survive, and all the rest are surplus. However you want to define that, that yeah. if, if, if we're not intrinsically important, then it can be manipulated. Yeah, it, it, you know, it may de it'll just be dependent on the latest ideas, well, how that will be defined. And it won't yeah. be necessarily similar to what happened in the past, but there are connections between what happened in the past and what we see going on today. And uh, I don't like a lot of things, but I'm seeing it with environmentalism today. I think it's becoming a very dangerous movement and more totalitarian as time goes on. Uh, by the way, one of the Nazi slogans for their environmental activities was this, it shall be the whole landscape. So they were going to regulate the entire landscape for the sake of, you know, for environmentalism and also for sustainable development, how we harmonize these things together. So now they're doing the same thing with regard to, uh, you know, they want the whole landscape, they want it engineered, they want it, um, see, it's no, see, today it's no longer just setting aside wilderness areas. Now they are trying to regulate what goes on in your private property. Well, that was born as a practice in Nazi Germany. For example, Roosevelt, he would set aside, uh, you know, parks and all that type of stuff, wilderness areas. But it's one thing to set aside a wilderness area. It's quite another to start doing this with private property on the property that belongs to you. It's one thing to go up in the woods and enjoy nature up there. It's quite another to expect you and your own private property to follow the same principles, to try to bring, bring the woods back to your home. I'm not sure I want that. Because uh, living in nature is a very difficult thing. I go up there for a couple of weeks and then I'm done. <laughs> but if some elite tells you that that's good for the whole, good for nature, then you have to do. A, you have to be a good little boy and do as you're told. Yeah. So that that social engineering over the land. Okay, this was born in Nazi Germany as a practice, and uh, now it's everywhere in the environmental movement, which, in my opinion, is actually more dangerous than setting aside parks and things of that nature.
Yeah, and I know it's very, very often quoted, and I've said it many times myself, but I think one of the most chilling quotes, which again comes from the Club of Rome, is is this one where they actually refer to human beings as a virus on the face of the planet. And I, I do think that's very, very worrying language to be using, especially when you put that together with, you know, the global biodiversity assessment where they, you know, say, oh, well, really, we should have ideally one billion people on the planet if those people are going to live a, a reasonable standard of living. You know, that's where we should really be at. And I'm thinking to myself, well, how many people are there in various elites thinking, well, you know, the rest are a virus. Let's get rid of them. And, you know, and if there are these ideas, the, the, there is this heritage of ideas that you've been talking about today. And it only needs somebody to be thinking along those lines. And that's a very, very dangerous situation to be in. Yeah. The, uh, the Nazis compared the Jews to viruses and bacteria. Uh-huh. And uh, so now, you know, now, now we have environmentalists calling people the same thing. And, um, you know, wow, uh, <laughs> at some point, somebody's going to act on that and, and less we're vigilant and, and trying to, you know, we, we got to we got to stop compromising with this environmental movement. We keep on compromising. We're going to have nothing left. And, and some elitists are going to take over and, and start uh, doing things that are that are not good. Yeah. And, and it's, it's so here? it's so easy, isn't it, for people to listen to the kind of conversation we have and, and just dismiss it as, oh, well, that's conspiracy theory. Now, to anybody who's thinking that, I would say. We have what happened in the middle of the 20th century as our warning. That is that is not a theory. That happened. And some of these ideas were expressed to their full extent at that time. This is a red flag. We really do have to take this seriously. This is why I wrote the book, uh, because I wanted to show that, that there's a history here. Yeah. And we're not just talking about, uh, you know, the, a theory. This is something which actually took place. It's already, it's already been done. And it may have been a little bit different what we see today, but... It's similar enough to where it can be a red flag for us today, and we need to be paying attention. If this happened once, it can happen again. Absolutely. And I think that one thing we need to, before we finish, we must make clear is that as far as I understand it, you are not saying that there is a direct line from Nazism to what we're seeing happening today in these extreme environmental circles, but that there are some similarities of outlook and that you're making the warning on that basis. Yeah, the National Socialists had their own view of environmentalism in the 1930s, and they basically took all the different views of Germany back in the 1800s. They distorted them for their own purposes. They weren't consistent with what all these men may have taught or believed, like Schopenhauer and Riel and Nietzsche. They may not have been consistent, but they did put them all together. They distorted them for their own purposes and developed a, a really a, a terrible time period in human history. And something similar like that can happen again. It won't be exactly the same, but uh, you can see where some of these threads are there. And what is dangerous is to put people back down into nature. If that's all people are is a piece of nature, then they can be manipulated and um, they can be controlled and they can be eventually killed just like the the predator and prey relationship that we see so often in nature. And there's going to be no God to judge us for doing so, so we can do what we want. And that's the scary thing about all these things. And it is particularly scary as well when that's so often presented in a very fluffy, very nice way, you know, getting back to nature. It's always presented in this positive way. And yet the uh, the moral barrenness of that and also the negative side of nature seems to be hidden. All these things are up for grabs. If you say we're part of nature, then anything goes. Yeah, <laughs> essentially. That's, yeah there's no definitions anymore. And, and yeah. now we have existentialism at its highest climax where nature itself is going to determine everything. And of course, nature doesn't think. And so, you know, we're just left, uh, we're, we're, we're in serious trouble once you start doing that type of stuff. As we said before, we're at the uh, the mercy of somebody's definition of nature. I think it's uh, important that people do actually read this book because in the conversation we've had, I think people will have picked up that it's an enormously complicated subject. And as I, I likened it to a spider's web, we've been touched at different places. So I think I do recommend that people do read the book. I think it is a fascinating read. Um, so could you tell people how they could get hold of this book? They can buy it anywhere online. You won't find it in a bookstore, but you can buy it anywhere online. Uh, Amazon, for example, carries it, W.H. Smith Books. Just type in Mark Musser, Nazi Oaks, and you'll have a variety of places to choose from to buy it. Uh-huh. And you have a, a website that people can visit. Will they find out more about your work there? Yeah, it's R. Mark Musser, www.rmarkmusser.com. And there are many uh, articles on that website, too, that you can read uh, relative to my studies with regard to National Socialism and Environmentalism. Also, other things, too, that have been posted on different uh, national media websites. Also, some things on evolution there, too, and uh, even communism. I have uh, discussions about that, too, because I also went to Evergreen State College, learned all about communism and Marxism there. And so I have my 
comments about that too, which is very interesting. So there's some good uh, good stuff to read for uh, good Christian, solid Christian material to read. Excellent. And I presume you're not advocating communism there. <laughs> no, no, no. I show how communism basically is yeah. is a secular version of Christianity. And it's even worse because it's without the resurrection of the dead. So we look forward to the future, but you know, why would you sacrifice yourself for some utopia that uh, you're not going to live in? To have that view of history, you have to have the resurrection of the dead. Otherwise, it makes no sense. Sure. And you have to have the possibility of the, the perfect human being as well, because otherwise you're never going to create this perfect world unless you can actually change human beings. Yeah, I put it this way a lot as an example. You know, the government gives you Social Security about the time your body falls apart. You know. <laughs> yeah. The Lord gives you eternal security and he, he gives you a resurrection body to enjoy Absolutely. it. Now, which one do you want? Absolutely. I can tell it. I'll tell you which one I want. Absolutely. <laughs> and uh, you also do lectures as well. So can people contact you if they'd like you to come and speak? Uh, yeah, always up for that. So uh, they can uh, I can get my email, I uh-huh. guess. But that's also on the website. They can look into it. All contact information is on my website. Great. Well, thank you ever so much, Mark, for speaking to us. It's been a great pleasure to have you on. It's been a, it really has been a really fascinating conversation. I'd like to go on talking about it for hours, but of course we can't. Uh, thank you ever so much for coming on, and uh, it would be great to speak to you again one day. Okay, well, thank you so much. I appreciate for having me on, and I had a good time talking about these things, and uh, thank you so much.